everyone, and welcome back to COVID and the Classroom, a podcast dedicated to getting kids back to school, putting parents in positions of power, and navigating the new world of education in the time of coronavirus. I'm your host, Mary Claire Amslam. So I started last week's episode with saying that I'm tired. I think it's safe to say I'm significantly more tired this week. First of all, let me say congratulations to you if you are listening to this, because that means that you have turned off the news. That's something that I can't say that I've done the past couple days. I'm recording this on Friday. You all will be listening to this on Monday. So future you out there knows more than I do right now, but I think it's safe to say that everything's a mess. There's going to be a lot of legalities surrounding this election. It's going to be contested for quite a long time. So hang in there, everybody. But we do have a bit of a bright spot and it connects to what we talked about on last week's episode, which is identity politics. And I think it's pretty clear that the loser in Tuesday's election was identity politics. Mike Gonzalez, who I spoke to in the last episode, wrote for the Wall Street Journal, that it wasn't clear by Wednesday afternoon who had won the White House, but one bad idea was soundly defeated on Tuesday, identity politics. The concept that the country should be divided into aggregated categories by race, national origin, or sex, now a core tenet of the Democratic Party, lost from coast to coast. I think he's exactly right. President Trump improved with every demographic area except for white men. And so, you know, Obviously, you know, politics is one thing. Identity politics is sort of a separate category, but it's good for our country that we see more people breaking out of these groups that we've been trying to place them into and start thinking for themselves and start rebelling against this identity politics class that we're we're putting in people into. I think that that's a great thing for our country. So that's the bright spot that I at least am focusing in on this Friday afternoon. So let's get into today's headlines. The first story is from the 74. Using tutors to combat COVID learning loss, new research shows that even lightly trained volunteers drive academic gains. I find this so interesting because a lot of the conversation around education policy revolves around how do we properly train teachers to effectively teach students? And a lot of times the answer for that is, well, we need to send them to grad school. We need to do further training. We need to focus on this credential. But this study is showing that that light training is equipping instructors to teach students in a way that leads to academic gains. And that's a great, great thing. So according to the 74, what if the benefits of individual or small group instruction could be offered to the kids who need it most? It's a question that policy experts have asked for years, often in response to research showing incredible learning growth associated with small scale tutoring initiatives. While individual programs often demonstrate impressive results, however, the cost of bringing them to scale has tended to derail the conversation. The study finds that while teachers and paraprofessionals were shown to be the strongest instructors, the authors write, even lightly trained volunteers or family members have the potential to help children realize important academic gains. Philip Oriopoulos, a public policy professor at the University of Toronto and one of the paper's authors, told the 74 that he felt excited by the consistency of the results. It really does seem to be the case that under different circumstances, different environments, different states, most studies point to the direction of saying that this is a really good activity to boost student performance. So once again, I think this shows that parental involvement in education 
makes a world of difference for that student. And we don't necessarily need to be over-credentialing individuals in, in teaching in order for those academic gains to be realized. It's another great victory for homeschooling. It's another great victory for private tutoring. Next story. This is a fun story. I'm not going to pretend to know very much about sports, but according to the Associated Press, Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson and Sierra, who's apparently his wife, I didn't know that, fun charter schools in the Seattle area. So this is just a fun example of celebrities getting involved in education choice. So according to the Associated Press, while he's leading the NFL in touchdown passes and directing the highest scoring offense in the league, Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson is staying busy with philanthropic efforts away from the field. This week, Wilson and his wife, Sierra, announced they are contributing $1.75 million to a charter school in the Seattle area through their Why Not You Foundation. Wilson and Sierra are contributing about $1.75 million to rebrand an existing charter program known as Cascade Midway Academy just south of Seattle. The Cascade High School program was set to debut this year before the pandemic forced founders uh, Garth Reeves and Scott Canfield to delay the opening. Canfield said the superstar couple's generosity will be honored with the school's name changed to Why Not You Academy, but that Wilson and Sierra won't be involved in the school's day-to-day operations. We hear so much from celebrities nowadays. They tell us every opinion that they have. Sometimes we really don't want to hear it, but I just wanted to share some goodwill that's being put out there. Some great money that's being donated to help the charter school effort. Charter schools have helped kids so much all throughout the country. I've talked ad nauseum on this podcast about how parents need more options and charter schools are a great, great way to provide families with options in states that don't have robust school choice programs. Most states do have charter school laws. And so any help that we can give to that charter school sector it is a really great thing. Next up, and I'll just mention this briefly because I don't want to go through every single delayed school opening because there are so many of them, but according to WTOP, in a reversal, D.C. public schools will not reopen elementary school classrooms for most students next week as planned, setting the need to readjust staffing plans after strong pushback from teachers. D.C. public school chancellor Louis Farabee announced the move on Monday. We have heard feedback from many in our community about the school system's reopening plans, and we will use this moment to adjust our timeline and staffing plans for reopening, he wrote on Twitter. The plan announced last month allowed for up to 75% of elementary school students eventually to return to the classroom starting November 9th. Instead, all students will begin a second term with virtual learning. Okay, so you guys know how I feel about this. Virtual learning is a disaster uh, for parents who don't have another option. These constant Delayed reopenings are yanking parents around who are making plans around their kids going back to school only for it to turn out that they're delaying it once again. We need clear messaging from our public schools and we need to stick to the plans that we're giving parents, especially in places like D.C. where parents don't have a lot of other options. And our final story of the day is looking at a bit of research. And once again, from a guest that we previously have had on this podcast, my colleague Jonathan Butcher, wrote a report for the State Policy Network, Are Learning Pods in Trouble? A new State Policy Network report by Jonathan Butcher details state regulations threatening the parent-driven solution. So we're all a big fan of of pandemic pods, uh, especially uh, on this podcast here at the Heritage Foundation, uh, because we think it's a great example of parents taking charge of their child's education during these 
these times that are leaving parents without many options. But strong way uh, that we can ruin all of that, that great work that we're doing in American civil society is to slap a bunch of burdens and regulations on there. So Jonathan wrote, around the country, state agencies and even district and city officials have issued statements tightening the restrictions around the formation of learning pods, or at least threatening to. Writing for the State Policy Network this week, Jonathan Butcher completed a review of state and local guidelines for learning pods. The overlap between learning pods and in-home daycare requirements as opposed to homeschool is significant because daycare rules are more stringent and numerous than homeschooling rules, Jonathan explains. Regulations like this could interfere with parents' efforts to create pods in the future, and with districts such as Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and other close to in-person learning for the foreseeable future, pods will remain a solution for parents dissatisfied with virtual education content from school districts. Again, learning pods are a fantastic option. It's really just heartwarming to see American civil society raise up at this moment and say, we're going to get together in our communities. We're going to educate our kids. I mean, that's how people did it in the early days of this country. And I just think it's it's absolutely fantastic. And for the government to come along and put those burdensome regulations on, on top of saying, we're not going to open your district assigned school on time. It, a lot of parents are just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, well, what do you want from us? What do you expect us to do? Our, our kids are, are struggling with this Zoom learning. It's not helping them. We're trying to do better by them. And then you're slapping these regulations on us. I mean, what gives? So we definitely should be keeping an eye on these regulations put on pandemic pods. I encourage everyone to head over to State Policy Network and read this report from Jonathan Butcher. It really is a great way to keep an eye on what the government is doing to crack down on pandemic pods. And some important context for this conversation around pandemic pods is that a Pew survey found last week that 72% of parents in low-income households were fearful that their children were falling behind because of the conditions the pandemic created. Learning pods are a viable solution for students from all backgrounds, and policymakers should be careful that regulators do not stifle this alternative. So once again, these, these regulations are specifically hurting the most vulnerable among us, those in our low-income communities. And so the, you know, the very people that a lot of these government bureaucrats are claiming to help are being the most hurt by cracking down on pandemic pause, which is simply parents exercising their right to educate their children as they see fit. I'm so pleased to be joined today by an expert on all things school choice and state policy. Uh, Jason Bedrick is the director of policy for EdChoice. In that role, he works closely with local organizations and state policymakers to develop high quality educational choice policies that will benefit as many students as possible, including reviewing and providing feedback on legislation, leading policy briefings, providing expert testimony, writing op-eds, and conducting original research. Previously, Jason served as policy analyst with the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom, and he also served as a legislator in the New Hampshire House of Representatives. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, we're all still trying to digest the the results of the election last week. There's a lot of new information we're getting uh, every minute. Um, I recorded the first part of this podcast on Friday, and I said to listeners, you know, you in the future listening to this on Monday will know more than I do. And, and that is definitely true. Uh, most of the networks called uh, the race for uh, for Joe Biden. Um, you know, of course, uh, none of the states have certified that yet. Um, and there's a ton of pending litigation surrounding uh, this entire election. But assuming for the sake of this conversation, 
conversation that we will see a Biden presidency um, that has many implications for education policy at the federal level. Uh, but thankfully, about 90% of education spending and decision making in this country comes from state and local governments. Uh, and Jason, I think you and I would agree that the closer that number gets to 100, the, the better off families will be. Uh, so to start off, um, what do we know so far about uh, the state of, of you know, where state and local governments stand uh, after Tuesday's election? Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. Not much has changed. Uh, okay. Only one state legislature has flipped. Uh, that's the New Hampshire state legislature. And uh, they moved from uh, Democrat control to Republican control in both chambers. Uh, there are some pending recounts. There are still a few races that uh, they haven't finished counting uh, so that there, there could possibly be some other changes. But as of now, the, there are a number of states that they, they thought would actually switch from Republican control to Democratic control. That has not happened. Uh, and in uh, what we're seeing is in most states, the, the red states have gotten a little redder and the blue states have gotten a little bluer. Uh, but uh, there was there was not really the blue wave that uh, that people expected. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, COVID sort of cast this whole shadow uh, on the entire election. I mean, it changed every assumption that I think everyone had going into the 2020 uh, race. So pre-pandemic, how would you describe the, the state of school choice among the states? Did you think that we were heading in a positive direction, you know, a negative direction? Where, where do you think that the country was heading towards school choice pre-pandemic? And then we can get a little bit into to how coronavirus changed a lot of those things. I think we were certainly moving in a positive direction. Uh, every single year, uh, there, well, put it this way, uh, about a decade ago, there was a bet between Greg Forrester, uh, who at the time was a fellow at the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, now the organization I work for, which is uh, named EdChoice, uh, and Jay Matthews of the uh, Washington Post. Uh, Matthews had said that, that he thought the school choice movement uh, had been exhausted. Uh, they were not going to, you know, they had, they had picked the low-hanging fruit. They weren't going to be passing any more bills. Uh, Greg, uh, Greg predicted that uh, th that year there would be at least 10 state legislatures that passed a bill. Uh, he has won that bet every year since. Uh, so there has been a lot of improvement. Now, look, there's still a long, long way to go. Most of the school choice programs around the country are still relatively small. They're limited to students with special needs or they're limited to very low income students or they may have caps of just a few thousand students that can participate. But we're at a point where about 30 states plus Washington, D.C. have some form of private school choice program. And we've even seen some states take that extra step moving from school choice to educational choice. So states like uh, Arizona, Florida, Mississippi, uh, Tennessee, North Carolina have what are called education savings accounts, where uh, unlike a traditional voucher where, you know, you get a coupon that's worth, let's say, $5,000 and you redeem that at a private school of choice, uh, the ESA is a private um, uh, restricted use bank account that you can use for private school tuition, but also things like tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning. Uh, and so what we've we've seen is uh, more and more states are are looking at ESAs and are expanding the programs that they currently have. That's great. That's great. So so turning to I mean that's where we sort of were pre-pandemic. 
turning to you know coronavirus the lockdown school closures i mean my my sense is that there's been a lot of families who uh, school choice wasn't really something that that affected their daily lives. They were, they were pretty happy with their school to now really understanding the, the freedom that's at stake when you can't um, have a say in, in where you're sending your ch- children to school. Do, do you share that sentiment? And do you think that COVID has had sort of a, an interesting impact on, on how families uh, look at school choice options? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the silver linings of this terrible virus is that uh, it has shaken families out of uh, just automatically going with their assigned school. And they've, they've started to think more deeply about, um, and more imaginatively, about education arrangements. Uh, A lot of parents have been very frustrated with their schools, um, you know, constantly changing plans, the lack of communication, remaining closed when they think they should be open or opening, but having, um, you know, either, uh, you know, it depends on the parents you ask. Some will say that, uh, you know, it's, they're insufficiently addressing uh, the virus concerns. Some say that they're overreacting and, uh, you know, squeezing the joy out of uh, education. And so parents have been thinking about uh, new and different arrangements uh, for their children. A recent EdChoice survey showed that more than half of families were either participating in learning pods or had uh, were considering doing so. Uh, most of the people that are doing learning pods are, are just, um, you know, they're working with their local uh, public school and they are uh, using the public school's, you know, curriculum online, but their kids are, you know, going to a, a friend's house to, to access that. Uh, but there are a lot of families that uh, have left the system entirely and are either hiring instructors on their own or parents are taking turns teaching their children. Uh, and... A lot of these families are doing this just to get through the pandemic, but uh, what we're hearing is that a lot of families are really happy with the the new arrangements, uh, arrangements that they never would have considered before, but now that they're doing it, they find that their kids are happier, they're learning more, they're enjoying school more, uh, they're more excited to wake up in the morning and start learning. Uh, So I think that um, this is going to have long-lasting effects after the pandemic is over. Interesting. And do you see that this manifested itself in, uh, you said that, you know, not much has changed in these legislatures, but, you know, red states got a little redder, blue states got a little bluer. Do, do you see the reactions that parents are having uh, sort of play out and how we've seen the way that, that these state legislatures have gone? Well, you know, it's it's too soon to tell. Um, yeah. The legislatures basically, first of all, once the pandemic hit, most legislatures uh, th- this past year closed down. Uh, at least initially. And then by the time they opened back up, uh, they were already getting into election season. And so a lot of them said, look, we're just going to drop everything and we are only going to focus on, you know, COVID related bills. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So they really haven't had the opportunity to address education in the era of COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I do expect is with with so many parents expressing frustration about the options that were available to them, parents tended to give a pass to schools when the virus first hit, but they expected that schools would get their act together over the summer. And yeah. to the extent that a lot of schools just haven't, at least at least uh, you know public schools, uh, the parents are extremely frustrated in the fall, and it looks like this could continue through the spring semester. So if if that's the case, I expect that there's going to be uh, a lot of pressure 
from parents on legislators to have some sort of solution. And one yeah. obvious solution is is educational choice, is putting the power um, into the hands of the families to make these decisions and have the money follow the child. Yeah, I, I think that there was, to your point, uh, a lot of goodwill and understanding when, when schools first shut down. Parents said, you know, like, this is crazy. Uh, we understand that we don't really know too much about this virus yet. We, we want to be safe. We want our families to be safe. You know, we understand a shutdown having for a, a small period of time, but with this constant back and forth of, of districts saying they're going to reopen and then them pushing back those dates and then just doing a hybrid option and relying too much on Zoom, I, I think that that goodwill uh, has definitely been um, exhausted. And I, and I think uh, one parents. thing that eroded the goodwill so much is is the number of school districts around the country that said, oh, we can't open, it's, it's too dangerous, mm-hmm. but if you want daycare, you can send your kids to the school building. We will provide daycare for your kids. We just won't teach them. And to the extent we teach them, you know, they can sit on a laptop uh, in one room and they can be communicating with a teacher that's down the hall. But you have to pay a few hundred dollars, uh, you know, a week or a few hundred dollars a month for this privilege. Uh, it's really unbelievable. And so a lot yeah. of parents started to say, you know, well. You know, you're telling me this is about safety, but I'm still putting my kids in the same building. Uh, and now you're charging me for a service that's supposed to be provided for free, just, you know, less of it. Uh, so I think that has eroded a lot of goodwill that parents otherwise had toward their local school districts. Absolutely. I think when the, when the history books write about this time, of uh, the time of coronavirus, I think that it will largely be remembered for a lot of the hypocrisy and inconsistency through which this, this fear of COVID was applied to our different institutions, schools being one, churches definitely being being another one. Um, so what's next for parents who, who you know, might have a, a legislature that, that's friendly to school choice, but really want to get their state going, you know, want to go, okay, this is the time we, we have the momentum behind us. We want our state to, to pass more rigorous school choice options. And you said about 30 states in D.C. have school choice programs. That's fantastic. But you also mentioned that a lot of them are, are limited in terms of the students who can participate in them. So what can parents do to really start to get their state um, to be more proactive in terms of pursuing school choice options? Well, they should start by uh, reaching out to whatever the local uh, school choice group is in their state. Most states have some sort of group uh, like uh, Ed Choice Kentucky, no no relation to our organization, but a similar name, School Choice Ohio. Uh, you know, in some states uh, like Florida, for example, it would be Step Up for Students, which is the large scholarship organization there. Uh, they could also reach out to the um, State Policy Network affiliate. So organizations like the Goldwater Institute in Arizona or the Rough Rider Institute in uh, North Dakota. Uh, these are organizations around the country that are working to advance educational choice, and uh, they can put you in touch with, uh, you know, the, the different organizations that are organizing the grassroots to advance educational choice. And just even beyond that, uh, you know, reach out to your local legislator and, uh, you know, uh, ask them, you know, if there is a, a school choice bill in your state and uh, that, you know, encourage them to support it. Uh, these are the sorts of things that they could they could be doing. Uh, legislators at the state level, uh, they don't often hear uh, from uh, constituents, uh, and when they do, they listen. So it's very important that uh, you reach out to your local legislator and, and let them know what you think. 
Yeah. And unfortunately, the the inevitable question after discussing, you know, possible ways for school choice to expand within the states is, you know, what pushback would teachers unions give? And, and you know, you and I both know that the first thing that happens when uh, states pass this school choice program is that the teachers unions get involved and they and they try to prevent it. Um, so do you see teachers unions having some momentum and wanting to push back against these school choice programs? Um, and and uh, I would also love for you to touch for a bit on, on the role that teachers unions have played in, in a lot of these school shutdowns that we've seen. I yeah, absolutely. Uh, they the anytime there is a bill that um, shifts the locus of control away from the public ed establishment and toward families, uh, the the unions. But also, it's not just the unions. Uh, it's also um, you know the the superintendents association, and it, it's a variety of of um, organizations that that are invested in the status quo of the public education establishment uh, that that push back against it. Uh, teachers unions, though, are probably the most organized and powerful of of these different organizations. And so they, they do take the lead. Uh, and we've seen even uh, things like um, it was uh, the Wall Street Journal reported recently that uh, the NEA, the National Education Association, um, had put together opposition research documents about a micro school chain in Arizona called Prenda that uh, in in just two and a half years had grown from uh, one micro school with seven students to uh, nearly uh, 400 micro schools with nearly 4,000 students. And, uh, you know, they were they were doing opposition research on this chain because uh, they were upset that parents were leaving their traditional district schools and finding new ways of educating their children. So, uh, yeah, I, I do expect that that in the coming years, uh, you know, we, we, like you mentioned, uh, the teachers unions drove pretty much these, these shutdowns across the country. Uh, there was some research, uh, I believe, from Corey DeAngelis at the Reason Foundation uh, and some others. I think there was another one from Brookings uh, showing that uh, uh, areas where teachers had, where the teachers unions had more power, they were more likely to face shutdowns regardless of whether there was a, an outbreak in that area or not. Uh, mm -hmm. So if, if the schools remain shut down and parents are looking for alternatives, uh, teacher, the unions are going to do everything in their power, I think, to prevent families from from um, finding those alternatives. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, you know, let's hope that that you know the coming years will we will see um, some decreased power from the teachers unions um, and more parents. The more parents get involved, I think that the more we can see some pushback on this and the ability to, to influence their their states to pursue more school choice options. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for joining us on COVID and the Classroom. I look forward to bringing you more essential information for parents, educators, and students during this critical time. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app to receive a new episode every other Monday. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with someone who might enjoy it. We hope to see you next time.
COVID and the Classroom is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.